From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Van Shee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guest and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joel Mitchell. How are you today, Joel? I'm all right, Jason. Really? You're sleeping okay? Uh, relatively. Yeah, I was uh, listening a little bit to uh, Dr. Helen Kelly's episode on the way in this morning, just the beginning bit. Mm. You were talking about how hard your life was because your aircon was so My aircon was and quiet, quiet and efficient, yeah. <laughs> Um, so what I found was that like on the weekends, um, my son knows to basically, he's not allowed to come upstairs and wake me up until nine o'clock. Uh, but he will get up and get himself some breakfast and he'll sort of play and he likes to sing to himself and all of that sort of thing. Um, and previously with just the, the white noise upstairs, I wouldn't really hear any of that, but now I do. So it's, um, it's more interrupting my weekend sleep-ins is, is the main problem that I'm having there. Uh, Cause you can hear him moving around. Yeah, yeah. Just, he's not like being um, obnoxious or anything. He's just doing his normal weekend morning thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Now we live across the road from a park and uh, most of the time we don't get great airflow through our windows. So we just keep the window shut and mm. have the air con on. Last night, it was cool enough for the first night in a while to have the windows open and not have the aircon on. Mm. But then the bloody birds in the morning, right? Yeah. Right. Do, do you have crows? Oh, we got everything. Yeah. yeah. Crows are the worst yeah. in the morning. They're yeah. just like, and when they like fly and squawk at the same time and it makes that like, yeah. you know that noise? What's the opposite of the dawn chorus? Yeah. I don't know. But it's a, it's not a nice sound. No, it's not. Uh, it's not. No. Um, not like that lovely um, British bird song that everybody talks yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, no. Just, we wouldn't describe it as Australia. A yeah, Australia, <laughs> Australia, mate. Um, yeah. So, okay. yeah, th- those those crows are just like, f you. It's morning. <laughs> yeah, wake up. <laughs> wake up, you lazy. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Look, all right. So we got to get a new topic to talk about. I think. I think uh, so. At the beginning of these shows. Um. um School holidays, Code Camp is happening, which is exciting. Oh, so is Ronan going to work here eventually as a coder? Um, who knows? Um, so this is like computer coding you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. So though it's a three-day thing and they come out at the end of it with uh, like a game, a superhero game that they've coded for themselves. So, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That will, uh, yeah, that will be uh, interesting. My, yeah, speaking of school holidays, my wife is leaving me for a week to go to Mackay for a basketball tournament where she's going to be uh, assistant coaching. Um, so I've got three kids to myself. Is that how you describe it when you go on a work trip that you're leaving your wife? I never say I'm leaving my wife. You just said that your wife is leaving you. Yeah. Interesting framing there, Jason. Yeah, she's leaving. She's abandoning me. Mm. That's, that's what it feels like, Joel. Mm. Um, but to, to single fatherhood for a whole week. No, right. Um, how are you going to manage? Uh, so we'll we'll check in. Um, yeah, yeah I, I don't know if we're recording between now and end of school holidays. We, we yes, we are. Yeah, we've got another one next week. 
Okay, well, we yeah. might be able to check in and see we how Jason is doing with see, the see how Jason solo parenting with his, yeah. with his week off. Because there's never been anyone solo parent before. No, definitely not. No. Nobody's ever had to do that ever in the history of humankind. I know, right. So it'll be an a interesting, grand experiment. It'll be an interesting experiment. My <laughs> hypothesis is I will survive barely. Um, yeah. We'll test that. My, my hypothesis is that um, there'll be chaos. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Chaos in your home. More, more than usual. More than usual. <laughs> okay, we'll see. If I just give them the iPad for the full week. Well, that's true. That's true. You can always just, yeah, parent parent with devices. That's that's always a good backup plan. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to be farming them out so I can still come into the office for a bit during the week, but we'll see what happens. Anyway, look, our uh, guest, guest has been patiently yes. waiting. Yeah, we have a guest. Sure so we should probably, probably let her in. I've been waiting a while to get this one on too, so we should probably get her yeah. on the show. Uh, she is an international leader. Uh, in the fields of coaching psychology and positive psychology. She's published over 20 academic chapters and peer-reviewed journal articles in these complementary fields and is an honorary vice president of the International Society for Coaching Psychology. She holds honorary academic or affiliate positions with the University of East London, the University of Melbourne, the Black Dog Institute and Cambridge University. She's the founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute. A very big welcome to the podcast, Dr. Susie Green. Hello, Jason and Joel. I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, Susie, uh, it's been um, uh, a a while that I've wanted to get you on. I've been trying to find a good angle to get you on. Um, Obviously, we focus more on the health and safety uh, side of uh, workplace mental health. Uh, You're definitely from more of a positive psychology background. But I guess uh, recent discussions that we've had and uh, your learning in in the area of psych health and safety and how it complements psych-psych um, I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion today. I do too. Yeah, no, it's, um, I think it's really relevant and I'm hoping people are going to be able to see the connections more clearly um, as a result of today, hopefully. Yeah, no, looking forward to it. All right, Susie, before we get started, what podcasts do you like to listen to? Uh, besides your own, which I love, Jason knows that I love it. And uh, I think you've had some fantastic guests on and I certainly learn from every podcast that I listen to. So that is on my regular playlist, followed closely by um, the Psychology Podcast by Scott Barry Kaufman. Uh, I don't know if you know of Scott. Scott was a PhD student of Marty Seligman's and uh, he is a fantastic uh, Uh, Well, he's a researcher, academic, but he's also just published a fantastic book called Transcend. And he went back and reviewed all of Abraham Maslow's original writings and journals and uh, has, I guess, reviewed it and built on some of Maslow's work, which is, um, and making some connections again to some of the research from positive science. But his podcast, he has incredible scientists and psychologists on there. And uh, again, I'm always learning from listening to, to Scott's podcast also. He hasn't had Adam Grant on yet, has he? Not yet, but I, I'm sure it won't be too far off because he's had some really yeah, outstanding speakers. Antonio Damasio, he had on recently, who's top neuroscientist. Um, yeah, he's had some really uh, top-notch people on there. So I'm sure he'll get Adam if he, if he can. But I know you're after Adam too. Yeah, you? yeah. Shout out to Adam again if you're listening. Um, hi, hi, Adam. Yeah, please uh, reach out to us. Uh, LinkedIn's easiest. Yeah. 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 We'll, yeah we'll, no. we'll squeeze you in. We'll see what we can do because uh, he's, uh, he actually did his PhD with Professor Jane Dutton, 
who I was really fortunate to do a webinar with, with University uh, UTS Business School. Last year, we had Jane Dutton and Monica Warline, who have got another fabulous book called Awakening Compassion in the Workplace, um, which I would also recommend to your listeners, because I think there's some great connections to psych health and safety from the compassion lens as well. Cool. We can um, look into that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Now we'll have to... Um... Yeah, definitely. I, li- I like the idea of compassion. Um, I think it's empathy on steroids. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you, you like the idea of it. You just don't practice it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I just like the, uh, the compassion. The compassion is the action orientated. Um, That's it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, who was it? Uh, Susie, we actually first met at the uh, PISA 10th year anniversary at Geelong Grammar School. Yes. Uh, I still remember um, meeting you when I was setting up an exhibition booth there for the first time. Um, and there was a, a, a guy from New Zealand um, who presented on Compassion and he just did an amazing job. Um, oh, uh, was a guy? I can't recall who that uh, was. Okay, we'll have to work it out later. Might, might actually have to get him on to talk about Compassion too because he did an amazing job talking about that and some of the research that he did, particularly in um, medical students. Okay, no, I can't think of that. But um, just again, just from that book, Awakening Compassion in the Workplace, I think it'd be really a great one for you to have a look at because Jane and Monica look at what a leader can do. Um, so from the leader's perspective in terms of uh, creating compassion um, through their own, I guess, behaviours, but also what they can do as influencers in terms of affecting the system as well to create you know, more of a compassionate system. So, yeah, I think it, it fits really nicely with uh, the psych health and safety. Yeah, and so, and so many different areas of it as well. Um, if you think about like the diversity and inclusion aspect of that and where compassion sort of fits into there as well. Um, yeah, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of room for that in this space for sure. All right, Jane, if you're listening, we'll reach out to you sh- shortly. We will, yeah. 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 We'll have our people talk to your people. We will. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so Susie, can you tell us all about your professional career, please? Yeah, well, um, it's been a bit of a long journey. And uh, I think every time people ask me about this, I think it's really showing my age, how long I've been doing this now. But I I actually left school when I was 16. Um, No intention to go to university. No one in my family had ever gone to university. And I went back as a mature age student when I was 24. And it took me, I've just worked it out, about 11 years to finish my undergrad because I had two children along the way. Um, So that was a bit of a long and winding road to finish that undergrad. And then I went back to do my clinical master's in psychology, which then transitioned into the clinical doctorate. And that was another three years. So (laughs) I've been studying it for most of my life. And even before I think studying psychology, I was reading a stack of self-help books. So I'm, um, you know, and I think for me, the beauty of studying psych was that it really gave some much more rigorous underpinnings to what I'd been interested in, intrinsically interested in anyway. But um, I went into ClinSight because I was actually, um, well, married, well, married, but then going through a divorce with a psychiatrist. So I guess my, my entry point into psychology was when my husband at the time used to come home and tell me about some of the patients that he was seeing. And we'd talk about, he'd tell me about some of the you know, famous psychiatrists and some of the theories. And I was so intrigued by it. And so he said to me, well, why don't you study psychology? And um, so, yeah, so I, you know, I managed to get myself into university and, uh, and study psychology. And, 
And I often tell the story of, I remember sitting in my very first lecture at University of Wollongong and there were about over 120 students, I think, um, at that point in time. And the lecturer saying, you know, it's a long road if you want to get right through to becoming your registered psychologist. There'll probably be only 12 to 15 of you that will go right through and perhaps do a doctorate. And, you know, I had no reason to believe that it, that would be me, but I knew there something went click and I just knew that it was going to be me. And that's exactly what has happened. It's been the most incredible career choice that I could have made. And, and I'm not finished yet. You know, I've got quite a few years yet to go. So I've absolutely loved what I've done. But I, I did start off clinic, clinically, worked in a psychiatric, uh, private psychiatric clinic, thrown in the deep end. And when I went back to do my doctorate, I was actually going to do my research on schizophrenia. And then there was a talk on life coaching by the local Australian Psych Society, a couple of guys that were interested in life coaching, which hadn't really even entered the realm of psychology at this point in time. And they were looking at it to use with um, Vietnam vets uh, in terms of life redesign uh, into the future. And to cut a very long story short, I did some research. I found out this, the University of Sydney were launching, had just launched a coaching psychology unit in the year 2000. And I reached out to Professor Anthony Grant, who we sadly lost just a couple of years ago now. And I ended up doing, yeah, a doctorate in coaching. It was in a clinical master's, but it was on coaching and using coaching as a mental health prevention intervention. So I guess, as you can see from the very beginning, I've been very aware of mental illness and mental ill health. But then I realised that my strengths and my interests were much more in the proactive space and or preventative space and trying to take out the skills that I was learning as a psychologist that I realised my children weren't learning at school and that most people didn't have access to. And that's really what I've become really passionate about in my work for the last, particularly with the business in the last 10 years. Yeah, interesting pathway there. Um, yeah, interesting that your uh, psychiatrist husband recommended psychology because uh, psychiatrists don't always um, think about psychology very favourably. So uh, good for him. It's so true, <laughs> Joel, isn't it? And in fact, I was really lucky because the psychiatrist that uh, I ended up working closely with, he worked really collaboratively with me. And in fact, he had he, he had started, he'd done undergrad psych and psychology as well as psychiatry and he had, was doing honours and then he got married and he never finished. But um, he was uh, very supportive and we worked very collaboratively, particularly with a lot of his anxiety uh, clients who then I would, my first entry point was teaching progressive muscle relaxation, uh, you know, alongside the, I guess, the medication that he was prescribing or the other sort of psychodynamic work that he was doing with his patients. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sophie's. Yeah. Yeah. More taking open. A, yeah, yeah. Taking that kind of an approach to his therapy, then you, you could see that they would be more open to working with psychologists as well. Yeah. But, but you're right. It's not always been the way. Um, yeah. Fortunate. Yeah, yeah, no, I had a similar entry into psychology, not that I was going through a divorce with my mum, but my mum was, <laughs> had been a GP for 20 years and uh, had started to specialise in psychiatry and had done a year. And uh, I was in year 12 at that time and not really sure what I wanted to do. And I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting, but I've got no passion or desire to do a whole medical degree. 
and then specialize. That's a, that's an even longer route, right? Than becoming yeah. a, a registered psychologist. So I thought, well, you know, what you're talking about is really interesting. So maybe I should look into psychology. So yeah, it was a psychiatrist that got me into, or almost psychiatrist that got me into psychology too. Well, my, mine too, in a way, because I used to read a lot of my mum's self-help books, which a lot of the time were authored by psychiatrists. I think yeah. Yeah, really just trying to. <laughs> I'm trying to elbow, elbow into this yeah, conversation. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's me. Classic. Classic yeah, classic, me. classic job. Yeah. So Susie, I'm interested. Um, what exactly does a coaching psychologist do? Yeah, so a coaching psychologist draws on or utilises underpinning psychological science, behavioural science, uh, adult learning principles to, well, there's, uh, I guess, a, a number of potential outcomes that relate to definitely for performance. And in fact, coaching historically has been very performance focused. But from a coaching psychology perspective, if you delve back to the very early definitions of it, it's always been about improving uh, quality of life, and well-being in addition to performance yeah okay and then um what about positive psychology because you i guess yeah. have melded the two together right positive psychology and coaching psychology exactly so when i first started i guess i i, I actually described myself as the love child of positive psychology and coaching psychology <laughs> so i grew up with both of them and as you can see my doctorate well my doctorate was on using evidence-based coaching as a mental health prevention intervention but um, the coaching intervention was a, a traditional coaching intervention. We set, we help people set a personally meaningful goal. We support them through the goal striving process. And as a result of going through the goal striving process, well-being emanates as, as a result of that. Um, but after I finished the doctorate, I became much more aware of the growing research base on positive psych. And as primarily as a practitioner, I started to experiment with applications of that research into my practice. So for me, um, and look, this is, I, I want to, I guess, put it out there that at the moment, and I would hope into the future that positive psychology coaching is an evolving field. So there are a number of definitions. I've certainly had my input. I've published or co-edited two books on the topic myself, but there are some other uh, colleagues of mine that are helping to further this uh, discussion and definition. So I don't think, you know, that we've got a definitive answer to what it is, but for me, it's very much drawing on the science of positive psychology and utilising that uh, in an evidence-based coaching context. And there is certainly science to it, but I would also argue there's an art to doing that as well. Yeah. So um, what sort of people then use that sort of service, um, coaching positive psychology? Well, I think you'd hope it as a result, clearly of the pandemic, and you and Joel would be very well aware, people are more than ever talking about mental health and well-being. Um, for me, coaching has always been about well-being, you know. But when I started exec coaching back in 2004, and I worked in some of the large professional services firms, uh, federal police as well, I couldn't really even tell people I was a clinical psych in those days um, as a coach. You know, I had HR directors say to me, oh, goodness, don't say that. People will think that you've come in, you know, to do therapy or there's something wrong with them. Um, and I've really seen that change over time where it's actually highly valued now as a coach if you have got a psych background. Um, but, yeah, so for me even though in the early days I was brought in purely around performance, I would always weave the well-being or the mental health and well-being aspects into my coaching. 
And in fact, my colleague, uh, Dr. Travis Kemp, who I worked with in his coaching company, we collected some data. Uh, I think, I can't remember exactly how many, how large the sample was, and we didn't publish it. We we presented it at a conference, but we never got around to publishing it. But we used the brief symptom inventory, the BSI. And so we looked at psychological distress in, these are high performing senior executives. Um, and it wasn't a small sample by any means. And it was 38% of executives turning up for coaching had significantly high levels of psychological distress. So I think this is when what we all sort of intuitively knew that coaching, you know, you know, necessarily wasn't just for people that, uh, that weren't suffering from mental illness. The reality was is that the people that we were coaching just based on you know, pure statistics, I guess, is that, uh, that they were, there were certainly people that ha were suffering um, with particularly disorders like clinical depression or, or anxiety. Um, but yeah, so positive psychology coaching can be used in a leadership con context. And in fact, the, the recent edited textbook that I've done with Alona Bonniewell and Wendy Smith is about positive psychology in the workplace. But what we're starting to see now is something called the democratization of coaching. And there's a couple of big coaching, well, more than a couple now, uh, coaching tech platforms. And we're starting to see coaching um, through technology be offered much more widely than it has historically been offered. And so, again, there's a, a focus now on performance and well-being together. And so it's much more accepted that the coach is going to work with the leader, not just purely on their performance, but on their well-being as a means to support performance as well, but as a, I guess, a noble and good thing to do is to help people support their mental health and well-being. Yeah, and, and as you say, with uh, on the on the back of the pandemic, you know, we are seeing an increased focus on mental health and well-being and the fact that the it's very closely relate, related to performance. Um, and so yeah, if we don't have someone who's mentally well and, opt, you know, optimising how they're, they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, their performance is going to suffer. So you can't really do performance coaching, I would argue, unless you're doing well-being coaching at the same time. Such a good point, Jason. But what we often see is or we have seen and we still see is performance to the detriment of people's well-being. And I think mm. this is a big psych health and safety discussion, a much bigger discussion than we can probably cover today. But I think it's the discussion that we need to we need to be having right now at what cost to people's well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we hear about burnout culture and um, you know, bullying cultures and, and that sort of thing. And, and that can definitely be borne out when there's too much of an emphasis purely on performance and, and not the wellbeing aspects as well. That's right. Mm. Um, so Susie, we haven't really looked at positive psych in a great deal of detail in this podcast before. So um, for our listeners, can you provide a bit of an overview of what of the discipline of positive psychology? Yeah, fantastic. Well, the definition that I prefer is one by Shelley Gable and Jonathan Haidt, which is it's the science of optimal human functioning. Because, um, I mean, generally we hear it more uh, regularly referred to as well-being science. And in fact, the University of Melbourne, who I'm affiliated with, just changed their name from the Centre for Positive Psychology to the Centre for Wellbeing Science. Um, and the reason they did that was to broaden, I guess, for, for people to understand that positive, there's, it's not just positive psychology that studies well-being. There are other fields like neuroscience, like coaching psychology that can make a contribution to understanding 
um, well, well-being, but I much prefer the optimal human functioning because I think it's um, it's a broader definition. And I also think for me, yes, well-being is important. Clearly, it's important, but I my preference is to look at coaching for, I guess, self-actualization. And in fact, this is something that Scott Barry Kaufman, who I mentioned before, has been talking about, or coaching for personal growth and development, for adult development. There's some wonderful adult development theories that, uh, that coaching is also drawing on as well to help people, yeah, be their best selves. Yeah, so can you give us um, maybe, um, are there sort of key theories or, or yeah. models and that sort of thing within the field? Yeah, absolutely. There are some key theories. The key, I would say, arguably, the key theory is self-determination theory, which is a theory that we use and have used in coaching psychology. In fact, I think we were using it in coaching psychology before even positive psychology. So DC, Ed DC and Richard Rich Ryan's work, which is hugely uh, influential, um, I think has got a huge amount to offer from a broader psych health and safety. Uh, it's a it's a meta theory that's made up of a subset of many theories, but but for anyone that is new to it, there's plenty on the internet that you can access. Um, it, it looks at uh, three three key psychological needs that are essential to thriving, and if those needs are thwarted, is the term they use, then that has a negative impact on our well-being. So competence. So we all need to feel a sense of being competent at something, not everything. Uh, A is for autonomy. So we use the acronym CAR. A is for autonomy, um, wherever we can provide choice. Uh, you know, even if it's limited choice, people flourish when they're given choice. And the third one is relatedness, which uh, highlights and I guess is aligned to a significant body of research in psychology generally about the power of our our positive relationships, but it also taps into, this theory taps into intrinsic, extrinsic motivation. So there's a huge amount there from a flourishing and a performance perspective. Um, hope theory is an, another one of my favourites. And in fact, a new paper just came out this week on uh, a new conceptualization of hope theory, um, which looks at uh, our goals, the capacity to set goals, our agency, and then our pathways to get there. Um, and then of course, you know, Seligman, uh, had PERMA, which not entirely sure, I don't know if it fully fulfills the criteria for a theory, perhaps a model more so, um, but they're probably uh, key theories. And then there's a whole stack of research. And this is why uh, in the early days, and as you can imagine, I've heard every single criticism of positive psychology that there has been, um, when people used to just write it off and say, oh, that's you know, there's, that's rubbish or there's not enough research or it's all happy-dappy. Uh, it's very hard to make those statements because it is an umbrella term and there are many, many different psychological constructs that are being studied across the globe. Some have much more research than others. That's absolutely clear, but it's, it's very hard to just write it off um, in one foul swoop, I would say. So topics like compassion, uh, positive leadership, which sits under the field of the complementary field of positive organizational scholarship, gratitude, forgiveness. Um, there, there's so many different top post-traumatic growth. There's a such a, a stack of research that uh, that can be help from, helpful from a positive psychology coaching perspective as well. Yeah, great. Thank you for that. I think, um, yeah, for, for listeners who are interested in finding out more, you've, uh, you've given them a lot of leads to follow up there. So uh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, I think one thing um, I really like about the field of positive psychology is pr 
primarily it seems to be more focused on eudaimonic well-being rather than the hedonic. Um, we see, particularly because we work in the digital, you know, workplace mental health space, that there's a lot of focus on, you know, just uh, focusing on oneself, you know, building up the self-practice of mindfulness, for example. And um, the whole happiness thing yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. That, like toxic positivity yes. stuff. Yeah. All that stuff. Whereas I really like this idea of meaning and purpose and how that's kind of interwoven within positive psychology um, and really understanding, well, you know, what is life all about? Well, it's to, you know, leave the world a better place, you know, to have an impact beyond oneself. Um, I had a really interesting discussion, I remember, with uh, uh, this person who ended up taking on a role. He was, he was ex-Wellington College, who we know, you know, Wellington College was huge in the field of positive education. Um, and he was taking on a role in, in Pennsylvania. And um, we had dinner one night in, in London and he was saying to me that, you know, he was thinking about taking on this role and he had to present to, you know, the board of trustees. And he said, look, I want to present there and say, look, I want people to self-actualize. I want them, you know, I want the students to be the best that they can be. Yeah. And I'm like, well, to what end? You know, why do you want them to be the best that they can be? Yes. It's, not, it's not just to be fulfilled that, hey, I've achieved the most that I can personally achieve. It's no, I've used my gifts and talents and strengths to benefit other people and made the world a better place. That's really the, the purpose. And so, um, yeah, I really sowed that seed in him and, in, and he got the role. <laughs> I did. So you're not taking any credit. For <laughs> no, that. no credit. But, but uh, yeah. But he, he totally wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for that conversation with you. Correct. Yeah. But I mean, Would that's. not have nailed the interview. And that's something that, you know, we're, we're still wrestling with ourselves. And I think we got a lot of answers to it, um, you know, with, within our own product development. Um, I really think that eudaimonic uh, well-being, because it's more about, you know, looking outside of oneself to how you're you know, making the world a better place, um, that the hedonic well-being can be like these little sugar hits of, of well-being or happiness yeah. um, that are short-lived and not sustainable. And it really re requires regular practice to keep that up. Whereas the eudaimonic is generally longer lasting well-being. Um, so, and it can have a greater impact through things like compassion on other people, right? Rather than just purely on one's own well-being. Absolutely, Jason. I think you've made a really good point. And I think we have moved from the you know, when PosSite first came out, it made the front cover of Time magazine with the big yellow happy smiley face. And I think for me, this is where coming from a ClinSite perspective, it was never about being happy all the time. And I knew that they, and I usually say they do lock you up if you if you are walking around with that happy yellow space, face all day, every day. So for me, it's always been around the full range of, of human emotions. And uh, in my original doctoral research, I used both measures of subjective well-being and, and um, psychological, so the hedonic and the eudaimonic. Um, but I, I guess I've got a couple of points. I think, firstly, I just on LinkedIn saw an interesting article um, with SAP talking about some of the key challenges for organisations, one being what they're calling this uh, purpose, uh, per, what are they calling the, the purpose hierarchy gap or something like that, I think it is, where the research has found that senior leaders do report high levels of meaning and purpose in their roles, but uh, lower level middle managers are, are, are not, are reporting a lower level. So I think there's huge opportunity to bring in some of the research and there's a significant amount. My close colleague, Mike Steeg has done some great work on um, not just that we know that people with high levels of meaning at work report high levels of well-being or productivity or whatever, but how we actually go about helping people reconnect with meaning. I mean, the whole body of research on job crafting, which I think you've referred to in the podcast previously, this 
so much practical research that could be brought to life in organisations to to help people around, um, particularly around meaning and purpose. But I also recall I was on a panel very early days and I had uh, a psychiatrist say to me, oh, positive psychology, that's just the individualistic pursuit of happiness, isn't it, Susie? And I said, well, not for me. It's never been about that. It's always been about being full, you know, being fulfilled so that I can do as much as I can in this world while I'm here. Um, and I think we have finally got to that point now where people are, and, and I think the world now more than ever needs, needs us to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's actually probably not a bad segue. So talking about workplace interventions, you said that there's some, you know, some key gaps that we could do more in. But what, what are the, the more popular interventions from a post-like perspective that are applied in workplace contexts? Yeah, well, first of all, well, I guess I wanted to start off by saying it's pretty ad hoc. Like, um, I, have, I haven't, to be honest, seen really great examples of what I would call strategic and sustainable applications of positive psycho psychological science in the workplace. I've seen that done more so in schools. Um, and because I think I, um, I haven't come with an org site background, but I worked very closely uh, with, I mentioned before, Dr. Travis Kemp, who's an org psych. So when I started coaching, Travis supervised me on org psych and I supervised him on clin psych. And then I started working with whole schools um, like Knox Grammar, um, Ballarat Grammar, Perth College. So I've had 10 years experience of working with, I guess, small organisations on taking a whole school approach to embedding positive psych. And the schools that have done it well have really invested and have realised, you know, that it's a four or five year cultural change uh, approach versus schools that might invest in a little bit of wellbeing education and then there are other competing priorities and then nothing happens. And, you know, it's just, it's, that's my biggest bugbear. And it's not just schools, but workplaces is bringing people in for, well, inspirational, motivational speakers. That's probably my biggest bugbear. Um, but even just investment in education, whether that's well-being education or psychological education, because we know the research varies, but it's less generally less than 10% of people retain from training day. So it's such a waste of time and money unless you're thinking strategically about embedding this into the workplace. Yeah, and that's not just um, a pod psych um, intervention issue that's right. like across across the the gamut right of, of any interventions often you know we go for the training and then get the sugar hit after that are going ah oh, there's a positive benefit and then a week later everyone forgets everything that they learned from the training it's not embedded it's not sustainable exactly but I think you know it, and I think one of the other problems in the early days I think it's changing a bit now is that you know, we'd been brought in as a bit of a band-aid and that's something I, I learned the hard way. I think I didn't ask enough questions in some of my early consulting and didn't realise the background to what was going on. Now I'm much more astute at uh, doing my homework, really uncovering, uh, I guess, yeah, underlying issues or cultural concerns before we would come in and um, be engaged to undertake wellbeing educational coaching programs. Yeah, no, that's good. And um, I, I guess that's what really attracted me to working with schools originally um, in the pod psych space, because they were well advanced in terms of workplaces. And a lot of that was because of the work of, uh, you know, Geelong Grammar and the Institute of Positive Education. And, and, you know, they invested so much bringing Martin Seligman out to live on their campus for a number of months and some of the world leaders right at the time in, in positive psychology to really 
consider how do we actually embed this within a, a school, right? Where, you know, wellbeing is secondary to curriculum. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's great that that work continues um, and obviously happening, um, you know, globally. Uh, but uh, I haven't seen, I, I was interested because, yeah, I haven't really seen it embedded really well in a workplace. Uh, I've seen, like you say, they have keynote speakers, you know, inspirational kind of lunch and learns, that sort of thing. Um, but beyond that, I haven't really seen consistent application or systemic changes that, that have been brought about with positive psychology as kind of a framework. That's right. And I think I didn't really answer your question, but I'd say strengths is probably the most common. And of course, strengths-based assessments and approaches uh, pre-existed, um, particularly with the work of Gallup, mm. positive psychology. But even now, you know, when I talk to large organisations, there are different types of strengths measures used depending on departments or teams. There's no strength strategy. Um, although I was fortunate to attend the Gallup conference uh, pre-pandemic, and I was significantly <laughs> impressed with some larger organisations that had partnered with Gallup because uh, I've had lots of conversations with Gallup over the years. And um, I guess I questioned them around, you know, what, how do you help? organizations to take a much more strategic approach and uh, I said have you published anything on that and they said no Susie that's our IP <laughs> so that's what they consult on is to help organizations uh, embed it um, so I, I have seen some of the the Gallup uh, organizations that have partnered with Gallup um, you know in terms of the presentations that I heard but my experience in going into organizations well some aren't using strengths at all which I find surprising in this day and age but the ones that are there's no strategy, there's different um, strengths assessments or approaches, um, but that's probably one of the most common uh, that would fall under the pos psych umbrella. Uh, of course, coaching is a positive psychology intervention and uh, my own doctoral research was in, has been included, I think, in three meta-analyses of positive psychology interventions now. I think sometimes people forget that, that coaching in and of itself has been shown to improve wellbeing. Um, but my colleague, Dr. Sean O'Connor from Sydney Uni, and I wrote a chapter on coaching as an amplifier of positive psychology interventions. So I guess we argued that you can go and do a two-hour workshop on job crafting or strengths or whatever it is, but how can we actually utilise coaching to personalise and contextualise that learning to enhance application into real, you know, people's real lives or you know both work and personal lives yeah and, and i think you know beyond the contextualization um benefit i think the just the ongoing kind of reflection and you know thinking about it rather than just a one-off training exercise you know doing you know a coaching course or meeting with a coach over many months you know you've got a chance then to reflect and embed it into your practices rather than you know relying on a training into a one-off training intervention to work yeah, and sort of um, turning the, yeah, so turning the learnings into into practice and then developing habits around that practice so that it becomes part of how you work. Yeah, and being held accountable by a coach. Yeah. You know, you know how have you put this into practice since we last caught up? Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't have to be, I mean, and as you would understand, there's no way that it can, everybody has a professional coach. Um, it's mm. just not doable or even with this democratization of coaching that we're seeing happening so it can be a coaching approach and this is where I guess we would argue that the ideal is to develop a coaching culture 
um, which is what the sort of work that we do. So you might still use professional coaches uh, for senior leaders or leaders more generally, but leaders would would go through leader as coach programs, which you know many organisations do uh, offer that uh, training, I guess, for their leaders. But all staff, and this is where what I've seen quite done quite well, and we're actually working with Geelong Grammar on this uh, last year and this year, who after as you know, Jason, ten years of positive psychology, uh, are now I guess seeing the benefit of coaching and how coaching can really be a lever to bring their knowledge of positive psychology science to life. So the ideal is that we can have coaching conversations or quality conversations um, that everybody can be skilled in having um, that, you know, can, can bring this knowledge to life. So for me, there is real benefit um, in wellbeing education. I absolutely believe uh, that people should have access to wellbeing education. We're not at a point yet where all schools are offering it. We're definitely seeing more and more schools. I think, mark my words, it's it will be the future in all schools. There'll be some form of wellbeing education to build wellbeing literacy, which is being studied at Melbourne Uni through a number of PhDs at the moment. Um, so perhaps into the future, we may we may not to run need to run these wellbeing education programs in workplaces. But I think right now we still have a gap. Um, I personally retain a handful of C-suite exec coaching clients, highly competent, highly capable people, but not that knowledgeable psychologically speaking, or, you know, they might have some skills, but they're actually really open and lapping up um, some of the psychological capability, uh, I guess, knowledge and skills that, that I'm sharing with them and uh, helping them to utilize in really personally meaningful ways. Yeah, and I think that's such an, a great investment if you're um, an organisation and you're promoting people who are technically competent but don't necessarily have, you know, the right understanding of leadership or how to motivate or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, bringing in a coach to build out some of those skills and knowledge that they don't have, I think is a great investment. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, Susie, I think, I, I guess a pattern that we typically see um, when organisations start to look at, you know, mental health or wellbeing interventions is that they'll start with a focus on, you know, resilience training or mindfulness training, and they don't really look upstream at, you know, what are the, what are the issues that we're actually creating at work? And they just go for those individual level interventions. Um, do you find a similar pattern when you're being engaged to do sort of positive psych interventions in the workplace? Yes, Joel, it's so true. And I'm hoping that your program is going to highlight this for, for many organisations. Um, and as I said, I've become, with my increased knowledge and learning in this, I've become much more aware and are asking those questions myself. Um, I mean, I think, not to say this is new, I have been asking these questions for a while because I have worked closely um, with organisational psychologists and uh, um I think, uh, you know, Dr. Eileen, or just about to be Dr. Eileen Doolagil. Jason, I'm not sure if you know, she's quite close to Eileen to, to submitting her thesis at the moment, or she submitted it, but um, finalising it. Um, so I, I think I've, you know, I've really benefited from understanding because as a ClinSight, we weren't really trained in those broader systemic, uh, I guess, issues and there is a big movement both in positive psychology so now with uh third wave we're up to the third wave of positive psychology now people are still i find critiquing positive psych based on 
yeah, over nearly 20 years ago. It has evolved. We're up to third wave, which is systems-informed positive psychology. And also coaching is um, much more systemically focused now as well, rather than, you know, historically it would have been just focused on that individual. We're now looking at the systems that people are in. So there is much more recognition of the impact of uh, the system or the, the groups that we're in. Um, so I'm certainly asking those questions, but I have, I absolutely have seen that happen, Joel. I've been involved in a 12-month program where um, we, and this is the reality of running uh, real-life organisational programs where we had a leader that was very supportive, um, was aware of some of the, I guess, other workplace issues that needed to be addressed, not just rolling out wellbeing education, uh, if you like, and we were collaboratively consulting to them about embedding uh, some of the, the, I guess, theory and research into practice. But he left halfway through the program. A new leader came in. Um, we had meetings with that leader. We became aware that there was some toxic behaviour that was occurring that was certainly having a negative impact on some of the positive work that we, we hoped that we were doing, in which we actually had evidence to see that we were helping create a positive ripple effect. But that leader um, decided not to address that behaviour at that point in time. And so I think a big learning for me at the end of that program was that, you know, as much as I believe in, in, in wellbeing education uh, and coaching, it does not mean that we don't address bad behaviour um, at, at the same time. So, so yeah, I, I mean, I'm absolutely aware of it. It's certainly discussion that we have with, any new companies that we're working with um, and I'm asking thanks to my uh, you know ongoing conversations with Jason and our ongoing relationship with Flourish DX I'm introducing uh, tools like Flourish DX to organizations that we're talking to I'm asking them questions um, the interesting one which I know Jason and I we've had a bit of a, a giggle about this um, although it's really not nothing to laugh about is whenever I ask about psych health and safety the general response is, oh, yeah, yeah, we've done stuff on psych, um, psych safety. And I say, mm, okay, so <laughs> tell me, what's, how do you see psych safety and how do you see that that's different from psych health and safety? So I, I think there's a huge knowledge gap um, that people have around the differences because Amy Edmondson's work has a, 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 you know, attracted a lot of air research, um, airplay, and, uh, but I think people are still not fully across the broader psych health and safety. So I think there's a lot more education to do. Yeah, um, that's, that's certainly something that we've observed as well. And I've recently had a, um, a colleague reach out and say that, like, because she'd um, done her PhD on positive psychology, not, sorry, not positive psychology, um, psychological safety. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Thank you, Brain. Um, and this person had reached out, but then they were asking about sort of psychosocial risk management concepts. Um, and so she was asking me whether, like, is that a common misconception that people have? Is that something that we've come across? Do we actually refer to the work that we do as psychological safety? Um, so, yeah, the, the concept confusion um, is just an ongoing battle. Um, and I think, you know, for, for people who come from a background in psychology, they're potentially 
better equipped to see that there are different things and that, you know, what psychological safety is because of those, you know, decades of research sitting behind it. But when we get people from other disciplines like risk management and occupational health and safety that don't have an understanding of that theoretical background, you can very easily see why they would look at a term psychological safety and think that it means you know, psychosocial risk management and the promotion of, um, of well-being. So it's, you know, when you think about it from that mental model perspective, you can see how it's easy to make that mistake from their perspective. Absolutely. I hadn't thought about it that way before. But also, as you would know, you know, everybody and their dogs jumped on the well-being bandwagon. Um, and so there are a lot of people out there that don't, that, that they are, uh, and, and selling their services, I guess, around uh, well-being education without that broader lens that we certainly bring to the work that we do anyway. Yeah, and that's, again, just, you know, goes to the importance of properly vetting your um, your providers when you're bringing somebody in um, who's supposedly an expert. Um, yeah, do do a bit of um, research into, you know, how how do they back up their claims that they are actually able to deliver this um, you know, and what's the evidence base that they're working from? Yeah, and so important, I guess, for the purchases of those services, you know, whether that's L&D or HR. And we saw this happen in coaching, um, the evolution, I guess, of coaching, particularly when coaching psychology, particularly here in Australia, um, that the HR directors became much more sophisticated in their understanding of, I guess, the differences between mentoring and coaching uh, and what professional qualifications you might need. So, I've certainly seen that evolve over time. And let's hope that this field, um, as it becomes more integrated and people start to see, you know, which, the, the role that wellbeing educational coaching can play as part of a broader psych health and safety strategy. I would, that would be my hope anyway. Yeah. And I think we're just going to continue to have an issue with that concept confusion. I mean, had a um, someone reach out to me over LinkedIn the other day asking if I could share an article that he'd written and gotten picked up by a magazine and uh, completely conflated the two, psych safety and psych health and safety. I mean, I think literally in one sentence, he went from one concept to the other and kind of like just mashed them together as if they were the same thing. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's a bugbear of ours, as all of our regular listeners will know. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Susie, I know uh, if, if I was going to spot a strength in you, uh, a character strength, I would spot love of learning because I know you're uh, always curious, always absorbing as much information as you can, particularly that pertains to the work that you do with your clients. Um, I know that you've been learning a lot about psych health and safety. So what, what are some of the, the core things that you've picked up um, that you think are applicable for, you know, workplaces? Yeah, well, I think... Um... Definitely the key questions I ask now, and just I'm just thinking even in the last few organisations that we've just started work with, do you, do you assess for psychosocial um, risks? Um, do you have an assessment in place? And I guess the response is varied there. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm really help, I'm, I'm realising that I have probably have more knowledge than I thought I had, you know, through our interactions, Jason, and uh, my increased knowledge in that space. So, certainly asking people about that. Um, and as I said, the responses have really varied. Some people have, no, they say we have a climate survey, um, you know, or a culture survey, which doesn't, as you know, always, uh, they vary, I assume, but I'd assume in most cases, they're not tapping into specific psychosocial risk 
um, factors. Oh, there's an easy way to work that out, right, Susie? You ask yeah. people, do you now know the likelihood and consequence of a psychological injury? Um, and if you're not getting likelihood and consequence out of your assessment, it's, right. not, a risk, it's not a risk assessment. There um, you go. I've yeah, learned yeah. something else again today. Yeah, Thanks. but I've just found, um, you know, again, if we're talking about concept confusion, people go, yeah, we do an employee survey. Um, yeah. Well, that's not a risk assessment. No. Um, so there's two questions you can ask. Are you, the easiest one is, are you getting likelihood and consequence of harm? Um, if no, it's probably not a risk assessment. And then yeah. the other piece is, are you understanding the severity, frequency and duration of hazard exposure? And yeah. again, if you don't have that information, you're unlikely to work out what likelihood and consequence of harm is. So yeah, um, they're, they're the big deficiencies. And again, I, I guess concept confusion is a real issue that we have to deal with, with what does actually constitute a psychosocial risk assessment. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, for, for I think, you know, even previous to more recent times, we've always recognised, um, and, and I think primarily because we have had feedback over the years from people saying, oh, well, you know, this, I get this, this is all well and good, but it's the system, you know, and um, I know we also did some work uh, with St. Paul's College at Sydney Uni Residential College with some of the, the young men going through there, a philanthropist that very kindly supported that program. And we had um, one of the leads of the AMA Student Association that was part of that program. Can't think of his name off the top of my head right now, but He's been very verbal um, in recent years and on Twitter around, let's not just throw resilience training at these medical professionals, let's change the system. Now, I have a son-in-law right now who's in that system and I'm clearly seeing the impact of that system on people. And I know as a clinician, uh, particularly in my early work in ClinSight, that yes, I certainly can equip you to go back into that system to perhaps survive but you're certainly not going to thrive if that system is actively undermining your resilience and well-being. And in many cases, my role was to help them move out of that system because it was that toxic for them to, to survive in that system. So, um, yes, I'm not sure where I was going with that point now, Jason. What were we? Where, where did we commence with that? Yeah, so it was around the uh, what? What have you learned about psych health and psych? Yes. Yeah. 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 So I think yeah. So we were always talking about look, we can come in, this is what we can do. Um, but unless you're serious about looking at your systems, structures, policies, procedures would have been the, the language that I would have used, um, then regardless of how skilled people are, if those systems are actively undermining well-being, then, you know, they're still not going to flourish. So for us to work with an organisation, we really do need to feel that people are authentically committed to uh to changing some of those you know systemic issues and we recognize that that's not always easy um particularly in global organizations so we work with uh you know uh, i guess uh, subsidiaries here in australia that it's not always easy there there are you know systems and policies and practices that are basically extrinsically you know told to them this is what you have to do um, but I guess sometimes we always, I guess my response is always, you know, we need flourishing people to change systems because if you're burnt out or you're languishing, it's very hard to change a system. So hence, let's try and, I don't think this is a black and white thing. I, and I've heard a number of your guests and I agree with them around 
don't just throw resilience or well-being. I absolutely agree at that, but I don't think it's a black and white. I think why on earth wouldn't you equip people with the skills of well-being and resilience at the similar, hopefully the simultaneous time that we are trying to change systems or reduce psychosocial risks as well? That would be my response. Yeah, and um, I think it's a really important point that you make there if you're trying to change the system but everyone's burnt out and has no energy or appetite to to change the system then you're not going to get that systemic change that you're after yeah it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing though Mm. like if yeah if your system is causing people to burn out and you're giving them resilience training but it's just barely enough to keep them from tipping over the edge then they're not gonna get to the point where they're actually able to have the yeah the um, capacity to create the change. And I mean, the, I guess the other thing is typically that the, you know, resilience training is, is focused on people at the front end and, you know, perhaps it needs to actually start at the, um, at the top end with, you know, with senior leadership because they're the ones who are actually empowered to create the systemic change. Right. Absolutely. And there's great research on that um, out of Ross school of business university of Michigan on the positive energy of the leader um, significantly impacting people in the team, but also back to their home environment. So hence why, as there always has been generally the, the investment in, in leaders because of that, that ripple effect. So if we can support leaders, and in fact, our experience through the pandemic in coaching leaders is that they've just been so grateful to have had that coaching support um, to help them navigate uh, not just their own well-being, but everybody in their team's well-being. Yeah, I, I also see this as the role of, um, you know, coaching psychologists, sure, uh, but external consultants who have their own subject matter expertise. If you're trying to do this and trying to figure it all out on your own, um, it can be very difficult. And um, particularly if it's not your core business, right? This is usually done to improve systems of work, but not the output of work. So, yeah, if, if you've got someone guiding you through, whether that's a coach or whether it's a external subject matter expert, you get, they can help push you through and through their understanding of working with other clients or individuals can help yeah. you to get through some of those harder points where you might not have the energy or the know-how to get through it on your own. Absolutely. I think that's a really important point, Jason, isn't it? And I think people are generally happy if and, and this is the conversation we would have with the sponsor of a program that we're running is that they acknowledge upfront that, you know, things aren't perfect, um, organisationally speaking, and, um, but there is a commitment to seeking that feedback um, and addressing some of those issues. Some are, I've seen, particularly more so in schools, which I guess in many ways are a bit more agile and capable of making swift change. I've seen schools implement changes like timetabling changes, which... If you if you ever worked in schools, it's not always easy to change timetables. But I've seen a principal pull in a timetabler and change it within an hour because they realised that the timetable wasn't supporting the wellbeing outcomes that they were trying to to get. So there are some things that can be changed, you know, small changes that could happen quite quickly. But there are others clearly that there's a little bit more red tape or you know a bit longer lead to be able to see those systemic changes happening. But I think as as you all as you both well know, they need to these changes need to happen and they need to happen faster rather than slower at the at this point in time. Mm. Yeah. Um, so look, you've probably already answered um, this question, and certainly I think we've all answered this question already through our conversation. But perhaps um, 
you could put it into a nice little sound bite for us. Um, what do you see as the synergies between the positive psychology and the psychological health and safety approaches, um, you know, in terms of how they can actually work together to achieve better mental health outcomes for employees? Yeah, well, I think for me, my favourite article is the La Montagna and I loved um, your interview with Anthony La Montagna's uh, the, the podcast interview that integrated uh, workplace mental health model. That's something that we've certainly adopted now. And it's really helped us get clarity on our sweet spot, which is definitely the promote flourishing, promote positivity. Um, and then, but being aware that the other two components, the reducing, um, mitigating illness, uh, preventing harm, if I've got that correct now, are equally important approaches and just, you know, besides the fact that, that they're not our key areas that we do potentially, you know, partner with organisations like Flourish DX, we have that conversation. So for me, I think the PosPsych has got a huge amount to offer, particularly in that promoting flourishing piece. Um, but it possibly has other ways, you know, given that it is an umbrella term, given that there are underlying theories like self-determination theory, that it could also have input on the other two arms as well well I think that you know and especially in a coaching capacity you've got the ability there to you know feedback on you know themes that are coming through your coaching in terms of you know what are those systems um, systems of work or organizational factors that are actually creating those those significant pain points um, so you're sort of providing another source of data then that feeds into that understanding of what the hazards are in the workplace so true, um, Joelle. And in fact, we've run a leadership development and coaching program at Accenture Australia, New Zealand. This is our fifth year this year, and it's a cohort-based leadership development program. And that's exactly what happens. We have case conferences with the coaches that are involved, and then we feedback these uh, these themes that come back back to the organisation, who can then look at those issues and hopefully actively address those issues. Susie, um, it's been a, a great chat so far. Um, uh, one of the questions that we like to ask all of our podcast guests, and no doubt you've heard a lot of people answer this question, but I'd be interested to hear your answer to it. Uh, what are your hopes for the future of workplace mental health? Well, I really do hope that it is much more an integrated approach to, to mental health and wellbeing um, more broadly. And we've seen these buckets of you know mental, mental health, which I always still think about when I was studying, we had the Institute of Mental Health, but it was really mental illness that we were talking about. And, and that's important, no doubt, but we need to have, yeah, we need to look at mental illness, um, mental health and well-being. So a much more, uh, a broader, I guess, approach and, and this integrated approach that addresses those uh, three key components. Yeah, no, I think uh, if organisations take that on board, they're a long way to having um, I guess a, a range of interventions that meet people wherever they're at and uh, a whole a more holistic um, and inclusive kind of uh, approach to workplace mental health for sure. Absolutely. And Susie, words of advice for listeners who are um, wanting to work in the field of psych health and safety. I think it's a really exciting time to be coming into this field right now. Well, firstly, uh, I guess, as I said before, psychology wasn't that well embraced, but certainly seeing it uh, much more 
positively embraced, um, but there's huge potential to make a difference, to influence and to have these bigger discussions around what makes for success or a successful life and uh, how do we help people increase their levels of self-awareness and know what their strengths are. And I just think, you know, into the future, workplaces really do have the capacity to be institutions that help people self-actualise. That's my hope. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, Susie, uh, it's been a great conversation. It's been worth the wait. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, you're probably the best person we could have had on to talk about the post psych and, and psych health and safety um, interaction, if you like. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a good fit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for um, the work that you do. It's, it's really making a big difference, I believe. Awesome, Susie. And where could people find out more about your work at the Positivity Institute? Yeah, the website, I'd say the positivityinstitute.com.au, but also I'm pretty prevalent on social media. Um, I guess more of my personal life is on Instagram. I'm happy to, to share aspects of me living my zesty as possible life and, uh, and love of learning. Certainly one of my top strengths, Jason, but definitely LinkedIn. I've been writing some blogs more recently, uh, particularly one on the rise of the chief mental health officer, which attracted some attention, including some of your guests, which was great. Uh, and uh, yeah, please feel free to, free to reach out if I can help make any connections. I'm a connector is another one of my top strengths. So if there's anyone I can connect you to, if you're looking at doing a PhD in this field, I'm pretty well connected academically in the field as well. So yeah, happy to help. Fantastic, Susie. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much. Well, listeners, uh, that brings us to the end of the episode. Remember, we do record these things over the video um, when we're doing a Zoom call with our guests. So you can view the video on the Flourish DX YouTube page if you would like to do that. Um, we also will take some snippets from this uh, conversation with Susie and we'll put them on our Flourish DX LinkedIn page if you want to follow along there. Uh, while you're on LinkedIn, you can connect with Susie, myself, Joelle. Uh, all three of us like to continue the conversation through that channel as well. So uh, that's it for today. Uh, we'll catch you next episode. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.